0: So we've messed with the service a little bit. As you can tell, we've moved things around a little bit. Uh, so, um, But coming out of that, uh, I really loved that last line, lying yourself down, laying yourself down to, to raise us up. Mm. That's a big portion of what it is that we're talking about today. I want to begin by offering a couple of my own parables, if I can. Um, not as colorful as Jack um, I'm not as colorful as Jack. No one's as colorful as Jack if you were here last week. He's a colorful dude. Uh, but as uh, as I consider the parable that we'll be thinking about today, I left my clicker. Which is uh, from Luke 16, so if you've got Bibles, go ahead and find Luke 16. We'll be there eventually. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible or don't have one downloaded on your phone... Um, ooh. That's all right. It's on page, uh, not that page. It's on page 875. Before we dive into that, I kind of want to talk, kind of lay some groundwork first. And I begin by talking a little bit about my kids. My Emery, who many of you have, you've heard plenty about them over the years, but Emery is my peacemaker. Um, She's my intellectual. She likes to argue with me. Um, So when she wants to talk about, when she wants to, a new piece of cake or something, she knows that if she gives me a really clever and, um, you know, uh, a very clever argument, she'll get it. Like, we don't, we're not so worried about rules in the Calicut house. We're worried about who argues better. <laughs> Which drives her mother crazy. <laughs> Ezri's different. Ezri's different. Esri, um, she doesn't want to argue with you. Esri has a very small box for her imagination. Her imagination is very fixed. So if you have something she wants, or you're in her way, or you take something that she has, she has one box, one imaginative world that she lives in, and it's called a strong right cross. Like, that is all she knows how to do. She just hits you. Doesn't matter what it is. Sometimes she looks at me, and it's like I see love in her eyes. But I see at the same time she's about to hit me. Like it's like, it's like this intensity just wells up in her. Like her, her world is sort of defined by who am I going to hit next? <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's just not, not even a joke. It's just true. So, um, and so Laura and I are, are working very diligently on converting her. I know that's probably not the way that you might think of it, but I deal with religion, Right? And so my task as a parent, as I see it, is... Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, our, my task as a parent is to convert her, particularly her imagination. I need her to begin to see the world and to think of the world differently so that when somebody gets in her way or takes her toy or she simply sees something that she wants, she, her immediate response is not, I'll hit them and take it. <laughs> like, I need to do something. And all of you other parents who have children in the nursery say... Amen. We're tired of Esri hitting our kids. And so we're working on things. We're working on the patterns of her emotions and not to let them direct her. We're looking on her pattern of thinking like she thinks everything in the world is mine. I have to convert her imagination for her to see that no, like that actually belongs to your sister. Like we literally just gave it to her. She's convinced, no, it's mine because I like it and I want it, right? So we have to work on those patterns of thinking. We're working on patterns of action. Don't use your hands, use your words, right? Get an adult, all of these things. uh, You're all parents, you understand this. If you've worked in the nursery, you understand this. If you have a naughty niece or nephew or neighbor, you understand this. In fact, fact, I would say that a good deal of our church fights and squabbles are that some of y'all are 85 years old and you still haven't figured this out yet. Which wasn't a slam against 85-year-olds. There are plenty of 22-year-olds like that as well, or 30, however old I am. Um, this is true across the board, and so we're asking questions. You know, like saying, talking to her, trying to convert her mind. Don't follow your black little heart. It is bad. Don't listen to it. We're saying things to her like, hey, begin to see the world as abundant and shareable. Like, there is plenty of toys. There are no shortage of toys. And in five minutes, your sister will bore of it. And so imagine how in five minutes she's done and you can just take it and play with it. And then you guys can share it back and forth. Like, imagine a world beyond this very moment. Imagine what it might be like without just, you know, this, there's only one toy and I want it. Begin to use words to communicate calmly the emotions that you're, you're experiencing and feeling. And again, this is something just generally we need to do as Christians. But we are talking about, with this, converting her imagination. Helping her to think of the world differently. And there is something fundamental about that. That there is no reason to hit. There's plenty of reason to share. And anyway, all of this that we kind of experience naturally as maybe parents or as people who are involved with kids, or just as somebody who's seen kids and wished more people did this with their kids. Perhaps that's you. Jesus uses a very similar idea. He talks about repenting. He talks about turning to God. He tells all of these parables, story after story. For weeks we've been working on these parables that are meant to convert our imagination, to begin to draw us into the moment to think differently about the world that we live in. Paul uses some very interesting language in 1 Corinthians, and I want to give that to you, these two little sections here. 1 Corinthians one thirty, he says, He, that is God, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us, and I want to highlight this, the wisdom from God. And, of course, these are things that we're used to talking about in church. Righteousness, sanctification, which means becoming more holy, more pure, drawing closer to God. Redemption, you know, being saved from our sins, all that kind of thing. In order that... As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. But notice that first he outlines this wisdom of God, wisdom from God bit. He continues that on all the way through chapter 2. And so I want to give you kind of the end of that chapter. He says, those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them. And they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All of that's just to say there are people who have not had their imaginations formed in a way that is spiritual. And so when they see the world, how do they see the world? They see the world very much like my Esri sees the world. There's only so much, and I better get mine now. How many of you guys know people like that? How many of you guys are? I'm just kidding. Right? That's all he's saying. I know that sounds very convoluted, but that's what's being said here. There are things that are spiritually understood. When your imagination has been converted, you begin to see Jesus in a different way. You begin to see the world in a different way. Verse 15. So those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And here comes this last line, this really beautiful idea. But we have the mind of Christ that's a big thought to be pulled on when you look at the world and think about the world, do you look at the world, do you look at your checkbook, do you look at your time, do you look at your, your friends, do you look at uh, your politics, do you look at all of these different things, these different interactive things in our lives that we make decisions about and we move on and we act on and we, our, 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 our patterns of emotion, our patterns of thinking, our patterns of actions, are they all being patterned after the mind of Christ? Because the scriptures say that because you have the spirit, and because, of course, you have the scriptures, you have very much the mind of Christ. Our minds are to be converted. It is the conversion of the imagination that needs to happen. It's said in our text that Jesus is our wisdom. He is all those other things, but he is our wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to make the right decisions, isn't it? But there are multiple wisdoms in the world does that make sense that some people will live this way and they think it's very smart like this is how a wise person makes a decision and there are some people who are going to live this way and they are going to think that's very smart and they're going to make wise decisions this way in fact this is kind of the very core of jesus's parable that we're about to engage in in luke 16 but before we do that one more one more parable one more way of getting at this there is a wisdom that emerges out of the world right? Nice guys finish last. It's a dog-eat-dog dog world. How many of you, because many of you, in fact, all of you work kind of out there in the world, live out there. How many of you have experienced that it is a dog-eat-dog dog world? Yeah, be honest. Be honest. There isn't very much. That's a very true experience, isn't it? If you don't get yours, somebody else is going to take it. So you better take yours now. That's a, that is a prevailing wisdom. It is a wisdom that guides many things. This idea of supply and demand, this idea of scarcity, this idea of, of how, to, how to live inside of a world where there is only so much. What are we going to do? We've got to protect it. We've got to take it. Right? There's a particular wisdom there. And then there's kind of a Jesus-y wisdom, which looks quite different. Jesus says something that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, let's just be real. Blessed are the poor because they receive eternity. They get the kingdom of God. Just a stark, cold statement. Jesus says it, Luke says it, blessed are the poor. What are you going to do with that? Then he, then he nails it with a parable, a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I, I, don't, I don't need to go deep into that parable, but you, but you know the story. The rich man is not the hero. Lazarus is the one who receives comfort because in this life he had nothing but suffering. The rich man who had all the comforts he could possibly want in this life suffers. It's an inversion of the world. The wisdom that the world operates by, God says that wisdom comes, is coming under judgment. But the wisdom of Jesus is something altogether different, and it is what will supplant the wisdom of the world. And we see some of that conversion here coming out in Acts four twenty three or 32, if you're not dyslexic. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. Have you ever seen this in your life? Rarely at best. And yet most of us have spent a good deal of time in church. And a good deal of time reading scripture, and a good deal of time, hey, I'm happy to see you today, and a good deal of time saying we believe the scriptures, and yet our lives pattern after it. All right, let's dive into this story. Luke 16, this is the most bizarre parable I think Jesus ever tells. It's bananas, guys. It's so bananas, if you actually do a little bit of research, no reason to do this, but if you were to read different ancient commentators, Wesley, Augustine, uh, 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 BD, all of these different commentators, all of them have kind of different spins on it, they don't know what to do with it, because it's bananas, which is why I figured I how to preach on it, right? There's no other good reason to preach a sermon than, you know, so here we go. So Luke 16, please see this in your Bibles, because we're just going to kind of walk through it. So um, Luke 16, 1... Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, 875 on the Pew Bible, here we go. He said to his disciples, so this, this follows just immediately, this follows a pattern of, of parables, three particular parables you're probably somewhat familiar with if you went to VBS at all in the mid to early 90s like I did. <laughs> um, and uh, so he talks about the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, all of these, all of these things talking about how God is stepping into the world to kind of do what we just sang about, to, to sweep it up and to, to bring it into holiness and to fix it. To reach the lost, the one who never leaves the one behind. And then he dives into the next parable, just following right on the heels of that. He said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought against him, against this man, that he was wasting his possessions, the master's possessions, the rich man's possessions, and he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Of course, the manager's flabbergasted and spinning and reeling. He says, to my the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. What will I do? Ah, I have decided what to do. He says to himself as I find my place. <laughs> uh, I, when I am, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said, Sit down, take your bill, and write 80. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And here Jesus editorializes For the sons of this world or this age are more shrewd in dealing in their own generation than are the sons of light. This is a weird parable. It's a weird parable because it's a parable that sometimes is titled the parable of the dishonest manager. And Jesus frequently, when he tells parables, tells parables in such a way that there's a clear hero and there's a clear villain. There's a clear pattern of how to live our lives or how to act. And what we have here in this passage is the question, uh, is Jesus saying we ought to be dishonest? Like, is Jesus saying we ought to take what we can? Is Jesus saying that we ought to be shrewd and manipulative like this manager? Is he, is he suggesting that? And if not, then what is, is he suggesting? I did a little quick, rough, dirty math, um, so I'm going to undersell it significantly. But let me say that each one of these two debtors owed at least, most likely far and away more, but at least a million dollars. So, we're talking about a million dollars because I know measures of oil and measures of wheat, what's that matter to any of us, right? I don't know what that is, (laughs) right? So, it's a million dollars and you owe a million dollars, and somebody sits down with you and says, cut that bill in half. How grateful are you? Pretty grateful. (laughs) Might have that guy over for dinner. We'll see. Or somebody even cuts it down by $250,000. I mean, that's, that's, a huge, that's a huge cut in all, that, uh, in all that's happening. And so not only are these people receiving great benefits, but the manager, the manager is just out almost a million dollars. He's lost almost a million dollars. And then what does he do? He praises the manager, Man, you really screwed me over great. Like, that was really good thinking. And it really was. I mean, what an imaginative maneuver. I mean, so smart. This is before lawyers in the same way that we have today. Like, he actually could get away with this. Like, he can go in there, he can cook the books and walk away clean. And the rich man looks at it and says, Yeah, I wish I would have thought of that. What a strange parable. So what are we going to do with this parable? What are we going to do with it? Well, first we need to realize that there are different kinds of stories in the Bible. First, there are positive stories which tell us how to live, how to, how to move, how to be in the world. And then there are negative stories which are kind of like, nah, bro, don't do that, like stories. That's, and a lot of times I hear people mixing the two up or missing what's being said. There are some horrific stories in the Old Testament that you absolutely should never think God said they should do this, right? But we take them as positive because we think everything in the Bible is a command to be done. No, no. Often there are things that are negative. So there is, is it a positive or is it a negative story? And I think it actually is something kind of in between. I think this is a parable about imagination. How do we think and move and live in the world? We might also look in this passage, just if you run into a puzzling passage, just kind of a, a helpful thing is to note, notice keywords. Notice keywords, pay attention to terms, the things that are said, people who are called something else than their name, because we don't know any names in the story, do we? What do we have? Rich man and manager. Rich man, let's start there. Rich man, what stories emerge when you think of rich man? From Jesus. Yeah, camel. Easier for a person to go, a camel to go through the eye of the needle, which is impossible than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Very good. Should have thought of one earlier I already mentioned. Lazarus, right? Lazarus and the rich man. But if you look within your text, because one of the ways that we can sort of work with a difficult text is to kind of take a big view of it, to zoom out a little bit. So look down at verse 14. That's, That's where this parable has finished, and he's beginning to talk. And it says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and ridiculed him. In the story, there's a lot of lovers of money, aren't there? And then if you turn the page, if you're using the Bible that I am, or if you just go to the very next parable, because this is all within one setting. Jesus is talking this entire time, right? So all of this relates together. The next one there is verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and here we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Of course the rich man is not the hero again Lazarus is the hero and so clearly we see from the start that this manager and this rich man are representing something that Jesus is is, is providing an antithesis to Jesus is not on board with their program whatever it is that they're doing he is not and so that begs the question of what is Jesus doing? Well, let's look at what he says there. He says in verses eight and nine, the master commends the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. It was a smart move. It was a great business plan. Like he thought it through and his imaginative power allowed for him to provide for himself temporal comfort. His immediate problem is this. I just got fired. Where is my food gonna come? Where am I gonna receive shelter? How am I gonna feed myself? And he solves the problem. So, he rewards him or or honors him for acting shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, and here comes a really bizarre statement. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by dishonest wealth. So that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Now remember I talked about using key words to try to understand passages. Pay attention to them. We should have two. Oh, I didn't make a slide. I thought I did. I didn't. All right. Well, two, two key phrases we've got here. First is this. The children of this age, or the children of the world. And they're juxtaposed against who? Children of light. You guys are on it. Children of light. Jesus drawing a stark dichotomy between these two groups, there are people who are very comfortable dealing with a particular way of living in the world. How do I take care of tomorrow? I can, I can lie, steep, chill, I can do whatever I can to, to survive for tomorrow. And they're, they're equipped. To deal shrewdly with the world. While there are other people who are ill-equipped to deal shrewdly with the world. They, they don't know how to think like those other people. Those children of the world, the children of the age, they get it. The children of light, they don't. They're not good at this. Because they think differently. They don't know how to think in that same way. You can imagine the great... Um, well, that's a, notice the phrase there. Um, Dishonest wealth. Uh, Somebody give me the verse. Where is it? Nine. Nine. Uh, Means of unrighteous wealth. This phrase here begins with wealth of uh, wickedness. The word unrighteousness is a word that we can translate wickedness. But what is happening here is that money in general, which is kind of the larger portion of this conversation, what Jesus is calling this is he calls this wealth, this way of dealing with the world, unrighteous wealth, wicked wealth, it's a way of, of, of being that is just not consistent with God. But he says this bizarre phrase, make friends for yourselves by means of that dishonest wealth or that wealth of wickedness, so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. What does that mean? Well, let's continue reading verses 10 through 13. Look, because this kind of feeds back into it and makes it very plain that Jesus is drawing a dichotomy between that which is here and safe right now and that which is eternal. He says, the one who is faithful with very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth or the wealth of wickedness, who will entrust you with true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, then who will give you that which is your own? Because no servant can serve two masters. They will hate the one and love the other." be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money so in this we see something that is very plain and very clear if we back all of Jesus of what Jesus says up into this story the story of dishonesty and manipulation. And the concern of of both of those, the concern of the rich man is that his possessions are not being used in a way that he wants. The concern of the manager is how am I going to provide for my bread today and tomorrow? Who's going to take care of me? How am I going to survive? They are fixated on what is right here and right now in their hands. You have something very similar, right? You have time, you have money, you have bank accounts, you have property, you have cars, You have space in your homes. You have a great deal of right now possessions. You have so much right here, right now. Then Jesus says, there are those who are fixated on eternal things. He draws this juxtaposition between these two. And he says this thing that's very serious, very serious, verse 11, right there. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the wealth of wickedness, all of this stuff that's here and now, if you haven't been faithful in dealing with that, then why would God give you eternal things? Why would God give you a room in his house? That's a heavy thing to say. Because we have on our hands money, time, property, possessions; we have in our hands bank accounts, retirements, extra stuff. And as summer revs up, as summer revs up, and it's it's revving up, we begin to think a lot about what's about to come. We think about tomorrow. We think about the future. We think about our vacations. We think about our plans. We think about um, you know the time away. We might think about this this cottage or this place or this area that you go every year. We begin to plan and pour our money and our time and our attentions. We have soccer camps and football camps and band camps and horse camps and all kinds of camps that people are involved in. All of that stuff is revving up and going and our eyes and attention are are spent on it. And you know what happens every single year in every single church in every single church in America. Our attendance plummets and our giving plummets. Every single year, every single church, portage, to California. And Jesus says, if you aren't faithful with the temporal things, why would I give you eternal things? That's something to be reckoned with. Very cold, very cool, no guilt, no shame. I'm not calling anybody out. If you think I'm preaching to you, I'm not. Is the word preaching to you? Is the spirit preaching to you? I don't know. But Jesus says something really harsh there. If on our budget sheet, many of you, I hope all of you write budgets, and you've got all of your bills and you've got all of your pleasures and you've got all of that mapped out so that you know your paycheck comes through, and if on that line of sheet, and I'm going to assume the best out of every single one of us, if on that sheet of all of the bills that are coming in and all of the pleasures and all of the Netflix subscriptions, if tithing finds its way at the bottom and your Netflix subscription is there first, are the things of God really first in your life? Let me push a little further. If tithing isn't before your mortgage, is your concern for the things of God or the things of right now? This is the um, kind of sermon that makes people come back to church. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, please, please don't hear me guilting or shaming anybody. I'm not. I, I am honestly not. And when I read this parable, you know what I don't see either? Guilt or shame. I don't see Jesus trying to convince these Pharisees. He knows their Pharisees are set in their ways. There are people who will hear this message and say, oh, you're just a, I don't know, just church just wants money or something like that, you know? Um, I, I, there are people who already set there. I'm not talking to those people. I am talking to you. I'm talking to you who hear the call of Jesus. To you who hear the song of eternity. To you who actually care about these little monsters like mine who are running about and you want to fund things so that gospel teaching gets into her. So that her imagination, my little Esri's imagination can be converted and that she will grow up and not be the kind of person who looks either like this rich man or this dishonest manager. Because both of them are, are fixated on something that is so sad. Like that story to me is just sad. This rich man is fixated on his possessions now. This manager is desperate trying to figure out where his bread's gonna come tomorrow and Jesus is over here saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there are people who hear this call and there are people who hear that call. And, church, the problem is that so often, so many of us, because we live in a world that is constantly pulling us in this direction, constantly pulling at us in this direction, it is easy to lose sight of this. And this parable to me is a song of redemption. It's a song of recreation. It's a song of something that matters. How much money did Jesus own? How many possessions did Jesus carry with him? I mean, Jesus is the figure that we look to, like this is the guy who has it. He's the guy who's whole. He's the guy who's put together. He's the guy who understands. He's the guy who's connected to God. He's the guy who's at peace, so at peace that he can allow his enemies with love, see his enemies with love, and then allow them to do the worst thing possible, beat and crucify and kill him. And we would look at Jesus and say, Jesus has it figured out. And we're constantly wondering, what can I buy next? These two don't belong together. They're different visions. They're different visions. Jesus can walk through this world with a clothes on his back and be just as happy as I am with my big screen. I don't understand that. Like, I don't understand that. But if we want to really take on the imagination that is in Jesus and begin to think about the world in a different way and to see eternity as a real thing, like you are marching into eternity, what is time to you? What is finances to you? What is property to you? What are, what are things to you? Right? None of that stuff has any bearing on eternity. All of that's dying. All of that's passing away. That car's gonna go bust. You're gonna have to buy a new phone. Like everything is passing away. But that which is eternal, that's forever. Um, she'll hate this, but it's just on my mind. I'm watching Ashley Lilly wrestle Otto over here. How important, as we see little Otto um, and, and Ashley, who's hiding now behind him, <laughs> how important it is it to you that Otto grows up into a strong Christian man? That his imagination is converted in such a way that he sees his enemies as potential friends That he sees wealth as something that's meant to just help people have that eternal home. How important is the conversion of his imagination to you? And what are you willing to invest to see it happen? Because if you aren't willing to invest to see it happen, don't say you care about it. And for many of you, that's money. For many of you, that's time. For many of you, that's support. I don't know what that looks like for you. But if we really believe in this, we really catch sight of what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look at these sad people. I mean, Jesus taught us to say, give us this day our daily. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from. Do you believe that? Because we see this manager and he's scraping, he's desperate, he's panicking, and his imagination goes into corruption. But the Christian is something altogether different. The sons and daughters of light are something altogether different. Their imagination is altogether different because immediately when they get fired, their first thought is, man, how can I take care of tomorrow? Because they know that the Lord holds tomorrow as well as today and every day after. Their imagination is different. The conversion has happened. So what am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to look at this and to see that it's different. I'm asking you to see this parable for what it it is. A description of the world and the age that we live in. And all of that parable that Jesus said, doesn't that reflect this stuff? Nice guys finish last. They get fired. The guy who takes care of himself, he's got a house right here, right now. It's a dog-eat-dog world. I'm glad I got the best of my boss before I, I exited that place. But Jesus is over here telling this story. And then he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I think the story of the rich man and Lazarus is another tale of lament. But also a tale that invites something. The rich man in Lazarus, you know the rich man, he is, he is clothed in purple and fine linen. He sits at a table every day and the table is full of food and drink and he's just full of life and enjoying. And at his stoop, at his doorstep is Lazarus. And Lazarus is broken and he is poor and he is hurting. And never the two shall meet. Until the kingdom comes. Until their death. And here we have a new vision. Now, uh, now that which was very high and lofty in this life Is brought low all the way to the fires of hell So painful, so deep That he cries out as he sees Lazarus Who has now been raised and is comforted by Abraham himself And he says, Father Abraham Send Lazarus to take his finger And to, to dip it in a cup with just one drop And let that one drop be given to my tongue That it would cool it That it would, that it would soothe it and Abraham says, these two are apart. The choices have been made. And what's so interesting to me about the story is the rich man. Like he is sitting there and he is eating and he is living and he is happy and everything is good and it never occurs to him in his imagination. His imagination never goes to the place that says, there is a person right here on my doorstep. I, I need to invest in them. I need to help him. I need to do so, bring him into the table like he never thought about it. It just never occurred to him. His imagination was fixed. It was boxed in. And what the scriptures do is they open it up. They open up your mind to new possibilities. Possibilities that encourage us to see everything that has been given. All of our wealth of wickedness. All of our unrighteous wealth. All of that. Whatever phrase you want to use. To utilize that. To make friends and to bring them into the eternal home. Into salvation. Into the kingdom of God. That's what this is all about. And the invitation that Jesus is planting in front of all of these people is, isn't life more than this? Isn't joy more than this? Why don't you seek more than this? And so we have an invitation today, and we're going to do it with symbols. The guys are in the back. doing the offering will come through if you haven't um, obviously we haven't taken up any offering yet and we're going to do that now many of you are not uh, check givers your online givers or however it is that you do it but when it comes past and you pass that bag i want you to hold that bag for a second and i want you to think what am i putting in this bag for god what am I putting in this for God? And I don't mean just money, I mean time, I mean attention, I mean prayer, I mean fasting, I mean all of these different things that are drawing us together. What, what eternal thing will you do this week for the Lord? Let's stand as we sing the song and as we pass these bags. Thank